We had a bit of a sad week last week in our study. We, uh, we saw Saul being removed from God's eyes as king of Israel. We saw the tragedy of Saul's spiritual blindness as he actually believed that he carried out the will of the Lord, but he hadn't. And chapter 15 ends with the separation of the prophet and the king, much grief, but also a little hope. Right? Hope for, for God has, has taken the kingdom from Saul, but he says he's giving it to someone better now. And today we get to see that new and glorious plan. Saul was the, was the king that the people wanted. We saw how well that worked out, right? So now we're going to see the king that God wants. And we're going to launch into what's known as the Davidic line, or the line of David. This, this line um, would never be broken. This line of, of progression of kings will never be broken. And it's the line that the ultimate king would come from, Jesus Christ. This is exciting. This is the beginning of his line. So uh, turn with me if you would to 1 Samuel 16. And we're going to uh, read the, the chapter there. And then we'll dig into that just a little bit. If you ran out of the house today and you forgot your Bible, feel free to shoot your hand up and we'll bring you a copy. And uh, 1 Samuel 16, starting in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? since I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go when Saul hears me? He will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. You shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, Do you come in peace? He said, In peace I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord, this is the Lord's anointed, excuse me, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Next Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Samuel said to Jesse, are these all the children? And he said, there remains yet the youngest. Behold, he is tending the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Saul's servants then said to him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you, 
Let them seek a man who is a skillful player on the harp. And it shall come about when the evil spirit from God is on you, that he shall play the harp with his hand, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me now a man who can play well, and bring him to me. Then one of the young men said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is a skillful musician, a mighty man of battle, a warrior, one prudent in speech and a handsome man, and the Lord is with him. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me to your son David, send me your son David, who is with the flock. Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a jug of wine, and a young goat, and sent them to Saul by David's son. Then David came to Saul and attended him. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David now stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. So it came about, whenever the evil spirit from God came to Saul, David would take the harp and play with his hand, and Saul would be refreshed and be well, and the evil spirit would depart from him. And may God add understanding to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth within, Lord. Lord, we pray that you would uh, teach us this morning, that you would illuminate this passage to us, Lord, and that my words would be yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I read over this chapter this week, I reflected a, a little bit over the previous chapters, and I noticed that a kind of an interesting pattern that I kind of wanted to point out. Now, I know that I've said in the past that we shouldn't look for ourselves in every verse in the Old Testament, but instead we should look to the Old Testament for training on things like who God is and for illustrations given uh, to instruct us. And I think an illustration is here for us to understand, and we can apply it in our lives. As, as I look back, I think of of chapter 8, right? And that's when uh, the first thoughts of sin came into Israel as they demanded a king so they could be like the other nations around them. Then chapter 9, we see that uh, the sin was sought out in the selection of the king that would meet the Israelites' expectations. In chapter 10, we see the sin brought to fruition as a king is selected. We, we see initial success with this sin when Saul uh, wins victory over the Ammonites. Then in chapter 12, we see sin full-born in the confirming of the king, and even the warning that makes people realize they've sinned and warns to turn back to Yahweh, or they and their king will be swept away. Then in chapters 13 and 14, the wheels really start to wobble for the king and his people. And finally, in chapter 15, we see death, the death of the king. Not, not physically, but the death of his kingship. As Saul loses it, it's torn away from him. If that pattern of progression sounds familiar, you've probably spent some time reading James. Uh, James chapter 1, starting in verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. This is a, a horrible pattern to witness uh, for Israel as, the, as their sin was brought forth and eventually ended in the death of the king. It's a horrible pattern to witness in a Christian brother or sister, too. And it can be heart-wrenching. In chapter 15, we witness how Saul's sin affected Saul and, and Samuel and even God. But now as we open chapter 16, we, we are left with Samuel. Saul has 
happily gone on his way. And Samuel's left alone in his grief. And verse 1, the, the Lord says to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? I think, and I know I've been guilty of this in the past, but when we think about these Old Testament prophets, right, we think of these very stoic men. Right? That they're just coldly uh, dishing out God's word and God's judgment. Like a robot. But these men were still human. And we aren't always given uh, in God's word how they felt about something. A judgment or anything that they passed down. But Samuel, 1 Samuel 16.1 is a perfect view of the fact that despite their words being God's words, these prophets still understood that People would suffer. Saul would suffer. We'll see some of that today. Israel would suffer. We'll see more of that in the upcoming chapters. And although Samuel trusted that God is good and God is just and that he had a plan, he knew there would be suffering. And so we see Samuel grieving for Saul and presumably the effects of what had just happened. But God had a plan, a bigger better than all of the hurt that, that was coming for Saul and for Israel. So he gives Saul a command. He says, fill your horn with oil and go. And he sends him to Jesse of Bethlehem. If you remember, this is what Samuel did for Saul. Remember, he filled that horn. It wasn't just a, a regular horn with like some olive oil out of the kitchen cabinet or anything. This was special oil. It was uh, made for purifying the priests as they went about their duties. It was... Um, very, very special. And so he fills his horn with this anointing oil. And I think in the top ten verses of hope in the Bible, this this little verse here may be in, in that top ten. I, I know it seems kind of mundane, right? Fill your horn with oil and go. But think about what God is saying here. Israel has gone and sinned greatly by rejecting God their king and demanding a man to lead them. The king has gone and completely obliterated the office of king in two or three years. And quite frankly, things look pretty dark. Samuel's locked himself away and he's mourning over the complete failure. But God. Right? But God. Right. God says to Samuel, how long will you mourn? He's basically saying, Pick yourself up, man. Did you think I didn't have a plan for this? Did you think I was going to let my chosen people fall forever? I have bigger and better things planned. In the words of Joseph, what Israel meant for evil, God has meant for good. Right. So get up and fill your horn with oil because it's time for me to bring this thing home. This was to be Samuel's hope, and dear brothers and sisters, this should be our hope as well. I'm sure I'm, I'm not alone in, in my wrecking of God's plans in my life. I'm sure if we all sat in a big circle, right, crisscross applesauce and, and confessed all of those secrets that we've got locked away in the private places in our hearts, in the places that, that we like to hide from each other and we think we can hide from God, every one of us would have times in our life where we completely botched something, some area of our life where it felt like we if we're truly honest, we can probably think of them here right now. And it's okay to mourn those moments. It's okay to look back and be like, oh, I'm such a knucklehead. 
What was I doing? But then God speaks, and he says, how long will you mourn this? Fill your horn with oil, because I have things that I'm doing. And this is what he tells Samuel to do. There's just one problem, though. Look at verse 2. He says, how can I go if Saul hears of it? He will kill me. And this, this little verse here just gives us just a peek of what's going on in Israel at this point. Because Samuel's obviously worried about Saul killing the prophet of God. That's how far down the rabbit hole Saul has gotten. So the Lord says, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And then invite Jesse. And I will anoint, I will tell you which one to anoint. Now, some people may look at this and say, did God just tell Samuel to lie? I don't want to get too technical, but look at what God tells Samuel to do. There's no lie in what he is told to do. He is indeed there to offer sacrifice. He's also going to anoint the next king of Israel, but considering the current political climate, that's probably not something you want to lead with. Uh, you don't hold the horn out and skip all the way to Bethlehem singing about the new king that you're going to anoint. You just get there and you tell him you're there to offer sacrifice. So Samuel's instructed to do that. Tell the, tell the first part of what you're doing, not the second. And we see Samuel doing something that Saul quite frankly, could never figure out. Verse 4. So Samuel did what the Lord said. Oh, that Saul would have done the same. Oh, that we would do the same. Verse 4, he comes to Bethlehem, and the elders of the city come trembling out to meet him, and they say, do you come in peace? He says, I've come in peace. We're going to offer a sacrifice to the Lord, consecrate yourself. It's kind of a strange reaction. Like, why would the elders be coming out trembling? I mean, several years ago, Samuel stood in front of Israel and said, I'm old and gray. So here he's coming along. He's pretty old by now. Maybe even has a cane. He's leading a cow. And these guys come out trembling. Why would they have been trembling? Could have been a few different things. Right? They knew there was tension between Samuel and Saul at this point. So maybe they were worried that Samuel was bringing civil war to their town trying to involve them somehow. Or perhaps they heard of what Samuel had just done at the end of chapter 15. If you don't remember what that was, there was much hacking on a fellow named Agag, which was done on God's orders, which would have been pretty terrifying under normal wartime circumstances. I mean, somebody gets hacked to death, it's, it's terrifying, it's war. But just imagine, like war was over, and this sweet stern grandpa comes walking up to this king and just out of nowhere pulls out a sword and hacks him to pieces. That's terrifying. But I'm sure the elders, when they, when they walked up to him, they maybe checked out, make sure he doesn't have a sword hanging by the, the side of him there. But whatever it was, they trembled. They trembled when he came. But upon hearing that Samuel was there to offer a sacrifice, they're put into motion. They're, they're consecrating themselves. So they're, they're bathing. They're putting on fresh clothes. They're staying away from dead bodies. Staying away from uh, sexual relations. They were to be ritualistically clean for the sacrifice. Meanwhile, Samuel goes and finds uh, Jesse and his sons, and, and he consecrates them and asks them to join. And then in verse 6, you see Jesse bringing his sons in. Then you're thinking, okay, Samuel's the, the prophet of God. He's going to get this right. He sees the first son, Eliab. And he says, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. You would think 
after just getting done mourning the last tall, dark, and handsome king, that Samuel might not be so quick to say, hey, this guy looks big. He looks good. This must be the guy. The Lord corrects him. The Lord says to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. We've been hammering that, this whole study of, of 1 Samuel. right? We, we've been hammering how um, God looks at the heart. And some days... I don't know, maybe God knew it was past appreciation here. I don't know. He just makes it easy on us pastors. Right? Because this, this verse here, it's, it doesn't really need any interpretation. It doesn't need any flowery prose or masterful dialogue. God speaks plainly for himself. And if ever there was a, a verse of hope for a slightly overweight, bald pastor, this is it. God looks right past all the physical flaws, all the blemishes. And his sword is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces through joint marrow to the division of the soul and spirit, and he is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. This shouldn't be a shock for us. We've seen this all throughout this book. Remember Samuel's mom, Hannah, praying her heart out to the Lord, and God sees her heart and honors that prayer while Eli thinks she's drunk. Remember, when Israel brought the, the ark into the battle under the guise of wanting to have God with them when they fought, God knew they were putting their faith not in him, but in a little wooden box. And then remember last chapter, as Saul attempts to justify his disobedience to the word of God, but God knows his heart and removes the kingdom from Saul. It should be humbling to all of us. And cause us all to examine our motives in everything we do. Am I involved in such a, such a ministry because I want to serve the Lord? Or because I enjoy the glory and the honor that it brings me? Am I a faithful attender of church because I'm checking a box? This is what you're supposed to do as a Christian, right? Am I here to worship my Savior with all my heart, mind, Once we grasp this reality, once we, we grasp the reality that God looks at the heart and completely bypasses all of the exterior stuff, another question should pop up. If God sees the heart and we see the exterior, how careful should we be in judging someone around us based on this? Whether judging for good or for bad. Just because a person is pleasing to the eye, are they someone we should have leading a Bible study? Or conversely, if we find someone that's not so easy on the eye, should we pass over them? And often, we don't make large decisions in that way. Right? We, large decisions, we try to make those based on the fruit in the, in the life of the person that we're dealing with. But sometimes, we do make decisions about who we talk to, or who we sit next to, or who we fellowship based on their exterior. Not the way our God works. Even, even when God humbled himself and Jesus entered the world as a man, he didn't come down looking like Brad Pitt or Denzel Washington. Remember, Isaiah 53.2 is a description of our Savior. This is our Savior now. The one to whom we owe everything. 
He was no, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. God doesn't look at the outside, he looks at the heart. So having been corrected, Samuel continues looking for the new king, and it's it's almost a little comical. He parades all seven of his sons by and no, 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 no. Tell me more kids. Jesse scratches his head and thinks about, oh, uh, David's out there. Shoot. He says, okay, go get him. We're not sitting down to eat until you get him. Now, think about this for just a second here. In the Christmas story, where were the shepherds when the angels came to visit them? Outside of the town. So David wasn't a hop, skip, and a jump away. They had to go run and clear out of the town to find this kid and bring him back while they all just awkwardly stared at each other, not sitting down because they weren't going to do anything until David gets there. And David comes busting in through the door, smelling like sheep, and he was ruddy. Ruddy meaning red hair or, or bronze face with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And I know I just said God doesn't look at the outside, but it's just a description. And that's not why God chose him. Just a description. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Samuel takes that horn of, of oil and he pours it over his head and in, in its symbolic sense the oil goes into every little crevice on his face and down his, his face and into ears and, and it just fills him like the Holy Spirit just filling every part of your body. The one key difference between Saul's anointing and David's anointing is that notice when, when Saul received the Spirit of the Lord, he received it in a manner similar to Samson. So Samson would go along, the spirit of the Lord would, would move powerfully in him, and he'd rip a gate off its hinges or kill a lion with his bare hands. That's how the spirit of the Lord came upon Saul. But David, David gets the spirit for life. It never leaves him. And to be honest, he was going to need it. He was going to need it because the, the first half of our a little more than half of our, our passage here has been hopeful. Right? We're establishing the Davidic line. This is where Jesus is coming from. This is great. And then all of a sudden the scene goes, crap. And we're looking at Saul. And I told you last week we were going to bump into Saul again as we studied 1 Samuel. But every time we did, it would be kind of like driving past a, a dead skunk in the road, right? It would smell and you wouldn't want to hang out very long. That's where we're going now. Verse 14. Spirit of the Lord departs from Saul, and an evil spirit of the Lord terrorizes him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now an evil spirit of God from God is terrorizing me. Again, notice who does the noticing. Saul's spiritual blindness was so great that his torment wasn't even enough for him to notice his distance from God. Saul was literally found tortured and in judgment for his disobedience. This is the only time in the Old Testament, the only time that an individual is noted as being tormented by an evil spirit. The, the fact that the Hebrew verb here, uh, it's describing Saul's condition, it's bahat. It, it, it's never used anywhere else. It shows the abnormal and the, the dire situation that Saul had found himself in. The service continue in verse 16 there. They say, uh, uh, we should uh, get you a guy that plays the harp. And he'll play it, and then the evil spirit will go away, and Saul thinks that's a good idea. 
And then one young man says, I, I met this guy. He's the son of Jesse. He played the harp really well. Mighty man of valor, warrior, prudent speech, handsome man, Lord's witness. One day I want to do a study of unnamed servants or unnamed uh, young men in the Bible. They're all over in there the more you look. Right? Remember, Saul had his servants. We never got his name. But he was the one that directed Saul, hey, you should go talk to the prophet when they were looking for the donkey. Now there's another unnamed servant here. And it just so happens, right? This, this passage is full of just so happens. The servant says, uh, you should have somebody play the harp for you. Okay? Why the harp? Why not the trumpet or the tuba? No? It just so happened that David played the harp. It just so happened that the servants knew this would work. How did they know that a harp playing would would make the, the evil spirit leave him alone. It just so happens that one of Saul's unnamed servants had seen David and knew that he played the harp well. And then the just so happens continue in verse 19. Saul sends messengers to Jesse and says, send me David who's in the flock. Jesse sends him with a donkey and gifts. And it just so happened the brand new king, the one that, that Samuel had anointed, comes into the court of the old king. It just so happens he serves on this court-making relationship with future advisors and generals and earning favor in their eyes that the Lord was with him. The new king serving the old king. Remember when I told you that David was going to need that Holy Spirit to get through these upcoming years? Can you imagine... Just imagine, you get yanked in from the sheep field, and this prophet of God anoints you with oil and says, congratulations, you're the new king of Israel. And what do you do? You go back to tending the sheep. And then, then you get declared that, that God chose you to be the next king, and instead of being installed in the capital with, with marching bands and, and fanfare and feasts, you're called to play the harp the existing king when he's in a bad mood. The humbleness displayed by David could only be explained by the Holy Spirit while he's in the One day we will do a deeper study into the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. We'll look at the actions he takes for us and the fruits that he produces in the life of the believer. We looked at that a little bit in Galatians. But today we must look at the keystone of our passage, verse 7. I'll read it for you again. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. This, this verse dovetails so beautifully with our passage last week. In last week's application, I challenge you to, to go home and, and examine your heart, to look for areas in your life where you were saying, I did what the Lord told me to do but there was still a bleeding of sin. This week we get to see the why of that application. So take last week's application, searching your heart for sin where you think there is none, and add this week, because man looks at outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Jesus restates this when he's speaking to the religious leaders of his day. In Matthew 23:25, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but the inside, they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. 
lying Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish so that the outside may become clean also. Again, I, I think that God knew his pastor appreciation because he, he gave me this really good metaphor to use today. And it happened this week, you see, we were, we were washing the dishes in the dishwasher and we noticed they weren't quite getting clean. There's stuff still on them and you open it up and it smells a little funky. <laughs> so I, I open up the dishwasher and I look in there and it looks fine. It looks like the inside of a dishwasher. And the little spray arm thing spin around and I close it and I start it and I can hear the water and everything. So I consulted the interwebs and I discovered that there's a float switch located inside the dishwasher that controls the level of water and it controls that little heating coil that's in the bottom of your dishwasher so that it heats the water fully so that it breaks down the oils and the residue on the dishes. So I replaced the switch and lo and behold Google didn't let me down. The heating coil began working. The water heated up and the oils were broken down. The only problem was, during the time the dishwasher wasn't working right, the lines inside the dishwasher where you couldn't see began to build up and choke and grow. As the heater started breaking that grew down as it now started to work, it began pouring out of those hidden places that you couldn't see within the dishwasher. It was not pretty. It took an extra effort to get it cleaned out. But as I was fixing the dishwasher, I began to see just how similar, just how similar our situation is with sin in our life. We can go along our ways, happily splashing along, everyone looking at us and thinking we're pretty squared away, pretty righteous. But inside, where no one can see, blowing out the fire of the Holy Spirit. The heat in our relationship with God begins to fade. And it's not something that God is doing. We've either not examined our lives, or even worse, we've chosen to ignore stinky sin. It's like Ephesians 4, 29 is taking place. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve. Another word there is quench the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also has forgiven you. You begin to quench the Holy Spirit in your life your spiritual life begins to smell. And you begin to tune out God's word. Your prayers, they become weak and impotent, like puffs of air in a dry desert. And when sin comes in, that should be immediately flushed out, immediately repented, and gone again. It starts to settle in those hidden places in your heart. And you can continue in this manner washed with the dirty oil-clogged water of the world, but your life will start to show it. And that beautiful glass tower that God erected in your heart for his Holy Spirit to dwell in, it will start to fog and become clogged with debris. Maybe in your search this last week, 
when I told you to search out sin, you found this in your life. And maybe you're sitting there in, in today's sermon, you're saying, Pastor Lance, this isn't helping me at all. I'm not feeling any better because now you're telling me that I thought I was the only one that could smell that stench and see that, but God sees it as well. What are we to do? To whom will we turn? Paul had something to say about this. In Romans 7. Romans 7, starting in, in uh, let's start in verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For good, the good that I want to do, I do not do. But I practice the very evil I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but the sin that dwells within me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? The body of death there, he's referring to the way that the Romans would punish murderers. And what they would do is, if they caught the murderer, they would take the body of the dead person and they would tie it face to face, mouth to mouth, arm to arm, leg to leg. They would tie it together and then they'd tie it down. And as that body began to decompose and the stuff started coming out of it, that would go into the mouth and the nose of the living person. And gradually infection and everything else would set in and they would die a horrible, agonizing. And this is what Paul is comparing this to. We are Christians. If you put your faith, faith in, in Jesus Christ, in the death, burial, and resurrection, you've made him your Lord. You have a new body, a new heart. But as long as we're here on earth, we're stuck in this old sin bucket. And it follows us everywhere we go. And, and, and we try to do right. And the right that we want to do, we don't do. And the stuff that we, we don't want to do, we do do. Wretched man am I. Who will set me free from this body of death? And if you just stop there, this would be horrible. This would be the worst sermon ever. But he doesn't. He goes to verse 25 and he says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. And then he gives us two verses in chapter. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So we see that, that not only does God see straight into our heart, right past all the exterior, he sees straight in there and he sees the hidden grub. And he sees the sin that we've got in there. He's also the fix for that. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Mm -hmm. Dear friends, if your spiritual life is beginning to smell, we have a Savior who is righteous and just and will cleanse our hearts. 
and restore our walk with him. This is why we're told to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. When we accepted Christ as our Savior, we agreed to some pretty impossible terms. How are you supposed to live like Christ? The perfect one. You can't. And you won't. If the Apostle Paul was author of half of the New Testament, if he struggled with it, how much more will we? But when we inevitably fail, when we fall, when we bite the dust, we turn to Christ. And he picks us up, and he dusts us off, and he puts us back onto the path, and says, go, fill your horn with oil, for I am doing something in your life. But maybe today, you're here, and you're sitting there, and you're saying to yourself, Pastor, this whole uh, dishwasher thing is interesting. <laughs> but I don't even know who this Jesus is that you're talking about. In fact, I know that something is wrong. I felt it. Conviction against the things I've been doing, and where, where I never really felt convicted before. Things I, I used to do and not even think about, now it's starting to bother me. I don't know why, but they don't hold that same joy for me as they used to. I, mean, I, just, I just know that my life is missing something. I know there's a hole inside of me, and I've tried to fill it with worldly things like alcohol or sex or money or relationships. Nothing I throw at it fills it up. I feel lost, and I don't know what I should do about it. Or maybe you're like the Ethiopian eunuch. You read the Bible. You crack the cover. It doesn't make any sense to you. You just need someone like Philip to come alongside you and explain what it means. You, my friend, are in the right place. If you want to learn more about this Jesus Christ, the, the Savior of all who would believe in him, we're going to sing a final song here in a second. And I'm going to stand up here. And if you'd like to learn how to start a relationship with Jesus Christ, and or maybe you just want to know why you should have a relationship with Jesus Christ in the first place. Come down and talk to me. I'd love to introduce you to Jesus. Show you all the wonderful things he's done for you and for me. This week, as we go our separate ways, remember God sees through our exteriors. Right past our, our pomp and our circumstances, right into the heart. If you have a little grut hidden away there, Confess your sins. Let the cleansing and the righteousness of, of Jesus Christ fill your heart and renew your walk with Christ today. As we sing this last song, if you'd like to come down and play, feel free. If you want me to pray with you, just let me know. We have a God that sees into our heart and cares enough to fix it. Thank you for this passage. We thank you for the truth that you placed in there, Lord. So clean, so evident. Truths that you just read and they reach off the page and smack in the face. But we thank you that there is no pretense with you. There is no hiding who we really are with you. You know exactly who we are. Just how dark and twisted we can be, Lord. 
And yet, even with that knowledge, you still sent your son to die on a cross for us. How do we ever thank you for that? The answer is we can't. Lord, we can put our faith in that grace freely offered to all who would believe. We pray through your Holy Spirit to guide us and to sanctify us and to make us more like you every day as we clean out that We love you. Please watch over us as we go our separate ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.